0: You've heard a hundred times how valuable a bias toward action is. Well, today's guest, Johannes Hock, is a great example. Only six weeks into their search, Johannes and his partner got under LOI on the business they'd end up buying. We spend a lot of time on what their process looked like. And yes, luck was a part of it. It always is. But you increase the surface area of luck by taking more action and moving quickly they also relaxed certain search criteria. Sure, we all recognize and nod our heads that the perfect business doesn't exist. But are you really prepared to buy, for example, a project-based business? Johannes was and did. And this open-mindedness was a big part of getting across the finish line. Also listen for Johannes' thoughts on how hard to negotiate multiples, the underappreciated advantages of buying in a growing industry, and just his eagerness to get into business. This last point was made to me recently by Brandon Adams in his update episode. There's value to just getting in the game. How many of my guests have you heard say, my only complaint is that I wish I'd started sooner? Tons of tactics and strategy both in this episode with Johannes Haack, owner of DFW Turf Solutions. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Listeners of Acquiring Minds know that for almost any business you acquire, its success comes down to the people and how you develop and manage them as their new leader thing is in addition to management there is also a lot of process and bureaucratic work when it comes to your new employees payroll compliance hr technology hiring to name but a few these processes are crucial to get right but at the same time distract from where you want to be putting your energy in leadership so aspen hr is an hr firm and peo that takes this work off your plate and handles it with the care it demands Aspen is owned and run by Mark Sinatra, himself a successful former searcher. So, Aspen's own leadership understands the HR challenges that searchers have post acquisition. The firm is offering Acquiring Minds listeners a complimentary pre acquisition HR and PEO review for your target business. Check out AspenHR.com or contact Mark directly at markaspenhr.com. At Johannes Hock. Welcome to Acquiring Minds. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. Johannes, we got a lot of ground to cover today. In addition to having bought a business, DFW Turf Solutions, that has grown dramatically in the two years since you acquired it, you also think deeply and write about our world of buying small businesses. So in addition to your story, there will be lots of themes for us to dive into today. Start us off, Johannes, with some background on you,
1: please. Yeah, happy to. Um, so I have a pretty traditional background, but in a somewhat uncommon path. Um, so grew up in Germany, uh, made my way to the U.S. Uh, via track scholarship. Uh, I was on the track team for the University of Texas, um, made my way into finance, um, started my career in banking, uh, and eventually got into private equity. So that's where um, you know, the background becomes more common to a lot of searchers. Um, the one nuance that's probably interesting for this discussion is that the niche um, that I was focused on was non-control deals, so that would cover anything from distressed debt um, all the way to buying, you know, forty-nine percent of a business. And so um, we worked a lot with, you know, family-founder-owned businesses, um, kind of be the first institutional capital that they saw. So a lot of times it would be a transaction where you know someone had built up a company they started to look at buying competitors and, and needed some capital for that or maybe they wanted to buy out a competitor um, or maybe they just got to a size where they needed some more institutional help to eventually become you know a corporation to sell uh, really large and so um, the interesting experience that I got was I would find myself regularly sitting across the table from uh, folks that had you know, started a plumbing company five or 10 years ago or that um, started a junk removal business in college and now we're eight years later. And um, after you send you know, the second or third uh, tens of millions of dollar wire across the table, you start to wonder if you're sitting on the wrong side of the table. And so, um, you know, this was kind of uh, a year and a half in or so of, of my associate's stint. Um, for those that are familiar with, you know, kind of the private equity world, about two years after you start, you typically either go to business school um, or you kind of settle in for the long haul, depending on what fund you're at. And so, um, you know, across the associate class, had a lot of conversations about, you know, what we were going to do. And I kind of thought about what if uh, instead of going the MBA route, I just take those two years. Try and see if I can buy uh, one of those businesses that I you know, want to go all in on. Uh, work really hard for three to five years, and and hopefully hit it big enough to where I don't have to work for someone else ever again. Uh, so that was kind of where the the thought of um, you know what uh, I would later learn uh, is search uh, w- was planted, and. Um, luckily had um, a fellow associate at, at that fund that thought very similarly and so after you know doing a lot of research on um, you know the search space um, how likely we were to find a company to buy you know who tended to be successful in search and whatnot we decided to do a self-funded search um, and so then uh, you know when the when our two years were up um, at our associates then we quit our jobs um, and started a self-funded search so that was Summer of 2021. And then, uh, in, uh, you know, kind of took two months off, started really at uh, Labor Day 2021. And then uh, October, I think, 18th, uh, we signed the LOI for, for the business that uh, we're currently running. Wow. Six
0: whole weeks into searching. We're going to get to that here, Johannes. But, um, you know, it's funny to hear that pattern of a private equity associate or somebody in their private equity career, young and earlier in their career, and uh, seeing the family-owned businesses, the founders who come in and, and uh, have, have, have built these often blue-collar businesses uh, and wondering if you're on the wrong side of the table. That is something now that I've probably heard three or four other guests say. And it starts to feel like everybody in private equity kind of has this, has this epiphany and, and then goes off to buy a business. Of course, there's there's a lot of bias here because I'm just getting the people who actually did that. <laughs> and it sounds like it, was, it wasn't everybody in your firm who was running off to buy a business. What do you think separates you guys and the opportunity you saw from other people who decided to go back and get their MBA or stay the course in private equity or whatever, just a little bit more entrepreneurial
1: or what? Uh, I don't. I don't actually think so. I think, uh, uh, oddly enough, um, I think most people that know me would describe me as fairly risk averse. So this is by far the, the riskiest thing we've we've ever done. I think uh, it it really depends on you know kind of what's the why and um, what you want to do long term, and I, that's that's one of the things that I talk to other searchers about that are kind of early on or, or thinking about searching. Um, so for me, it's always been this, this idea of there's, there's a lot of things, you know, I come from a track and field background. There's, you know, nobody pays for track and field. It's always, uh, you know, you have to find sponsors, you have to raise money, whatever you want to do. And so I've always, uh, kind of had this, this thought of like, I have a number in mind that I want to hit. And then there's a lot of things I want to do that, that won't make money. Um, so I need to kind of get to, uh, my nest egg first. Um, and then I can, you know, kind of spend more time on, on things that I'm passionate about in that way. And so I think for a lot of people that uh, have or take more enjoyment in just uh, the, the the prestige and uh, you know kind of more in depth intellectual work of, of private equity and just you know frankly your uh, you know the stability um, it, it is a, a very attractive pathway in the long run. Um, and but I think for for people that have uh, you know maybe want to get to the other side quicker, I mean it was really for us it was the swing for the fences, right? I, I kind of said it, it, it's now or never. Um, especially you know we'll we'll probably talk about the uh, experience of write, writing a personal guarantee and and you know the possibility of bankruptcy and and it was one of those things where I was like the the further up you go the chain the the bigger the golden handcuffs become and so. Um, you know, uh, I I didn't want the the two years of uh travel and vacation that that most MBAs are for for people that are in finance and want to go back into finance, and so I just thought it's it's the right time to you know, hopefully shortcut uh fifteen years of of uh working and and get to the same outcome in obviously in a, in a positive outcome. So you think that the the potential
0: here is equivalent to somebody who a private equity person who is successful in their career and does it for fifteen years because. My impression of somebody who's in private equity for fifteen long grueling years that they'll be re- they'll be earning a lot of money at the end of those fifteen years, and so you think the opportunity in search is uh, the financial uh, potential is similar there between fifteen years in private equity and five or five years in a search business I know we're generalizing extremely widely but Indulge me.
1: <laughs> it's more so that the 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 right tail is is fatter in search, right? Like you can truly hit it big. The odds that as a you know, twenty seven, thirty, like thirty two year old uh, guy working in private equity, wherever you're at on the ladder, like there's pr- pretty much no way you're going to get like a five, ten, twenty million dollar payday, right? Yeah. Uh, now I'm not saying that's a, a typical outcome in search, but it's at least one that's possible, right? And so. Yeah. Um, I, I think nowadays, obviously, private equity has become pretty saturated, um, so the typical timeline is you're going to do 10 years at your fund that you're kind of working up the ladder and you know, you're, you're making good money by all traditional standards, obviously, but you're not making uh, retire at 35 money, um, and so then you establish yourself for 10 years, then you have to do your own deals for 10 years, at which point you're probably, you know, you're, you're making 2 million a year, whatever you're making uh, with carry and everything. And then after those ten ten years, now you get to run your own fund, and now you make you know kind of the stupid money that people know about private equity. So, if you're starting at um, you know 25 uh, into into private equity, we're talking about 45 until you get into your your peak earnings years, right? Yeah. And so, my thinking is like, of course, over the the you know over a lifetime, you'll probably make more money in uh, in private equity. But what I'm saying is in I don't need to, I don't need to make 50 million bucks. Right. Like what I'm saying is like, I can get to the number I want to get to faster in search if it works out again, if it works out, um, then going through the regular private equity ladder. Well, you have now
0: referred to your quote number twice. Can you tell us what it is?
1: It, it, it moves a lot, uh, kind of between, uh, between 10 and 20, but that's, that's kind of the ballpark.
0: All right, we're gonna we're gonna use fifteen as Johannes's number here. Fair enough. I appreciate I appreciate you sharing that with us. That's great. So, uh, as if it's not already clear, um, you are not a kind of permanent equity, permanent capital, hold forever, build a hold co. Searcher acquisition entrepreneur. You are somebody who is trying to buy, grow, and exit uh, a business. So um, it's, it's it's really I. I um, just emphasize that because every searcher should know very clearly what what they want um, because it will dictate a lot of how you how you search, what kind of search you do, what you know so many decisions follow from that.
1: So um, now that we have that clear, let's continue with your story. Uh yeah, uh, h- happy to. Um, so um, yeah, I think the you know the search process we ran obviously did did a lot of like, work early on. Talked to you know twenty thirty searchers uh, before we even started our search. Um, the way that we approached it was the second the clock starts ticking, which for us was you know Labor Day twenty one. I want to start talking to brokers day one. I want to start looking at deals day one, and so. Uh, we did all the kind of legwork, the setting up a website, setting up a CRM, like, uh, you know, pulling lists of brokers, pulling lists of companies. All that was still kind of in, you know, kind of mid-2021. Um, and I, I think the um, the biggest thing that we did differently was uh, w- was probably two or three things. One was um, the first conversation that I had with um, one of my former professors who's very involved in the small business world was... I came in with the probably standard criteria that everyone has, right? Recurring revenue around for a long time, profitable, no concentration, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, uh, that was my first conversation. He was like, "Yeah, good luck finding that unicorn. You know, you're not, not going to find that." And so yep. uh, that <laughs> you know, you got that slap in the face before we looked at the you know the first uh, listing or anything, which I think was very helpful because. That's uh, you know something I see a lot and people they they spent the first year looking for their perfect deal. Um, and then a year in they start to widen the criteria. And mm-hmm. that's pretty draining when you know you just kind of lose out, lose out or look, and you know nothing that you see matches, and it's just a really frustrating process. So that was the first realization. Um, and then the second realization uh, was in talking to the people that you know, had bought or, or hadn't bought, which frankly, you know, people that haven't bought are, are kind of uh, a little harder to find. Um, but at least the difference between people that had bought quickly and people that um, you know, were searching for a long time, the, the biggest difference was just that there was a certain attitude at people that want, you know, bought quickly to just get in the saddle like not everything is going to be perfect at the end of the day you have to just pick your horse and get on it and and figure it out and so um those t- with those two things in mind we had um a relatively broad um spectrum of companies we looked at um so our target was texas uh we probably had five six industries you know uh home services was a big one uh, but healthcare consumer products light manufacturing and um we really looked at just moving quickly. So in that time period of the, you know, kind of six to 12 weeks that we really searched because we continued, you know, searching after we, we signed the first LOI, we probably wrote, you know, 40, 50 IOIs. We probably wrote 15 LOIs and we actually signed three LOIs. So our numbers probably don't look much different than any other search. Um, it just was compressed in a, in a much shorter time frame. August Felker is a two time successful searcher. First, with a traditional search
0: fund. The second time around, he did a self funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great, no risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com, O B E R L E hyphen risk.com. Link in the show notes. Johannes, the slap in the face that you got from the professor. Good luck finding the unicorn that that checks all the boxes. So, what were some of the criteria that you were? That you relaxed, that you were willing to relax, or or was it not like that? It was just like you would just lowered your standards a little bit, and you looked at more listings than you otherwise would have. Or were there particular um, criteria that you relaxed? This is a leading question because you've written an article entitled something to the effect of recurring revenue is
1: overrated. <laughs> yep, no, that was that was exactly the the, the first one to go. Um... I, I think there were some that were uh, less flexible I think we were more focused on location um, somewhat more focused on uh, on industry um, but yeah re- recurring revenue was the first one to go um, and, and I think what's um, what's interesting there is you know if, if you think about the universe of companies uh, a, the The universe of truly recurring revenue businesses is is v- fairly small, and especially in in smaller businesses, there is almost always some level of uh, on the positive side, reoccurring, but just a lot of project based, right? Yeah. Um. And so we were trying to figure out, and this is you know kind of coming from the the private equity background of where can we find value that other people can't by just doing better diligence, by you know learning more about a certain industry. Um, and and obviously, you know, the company that we ended up buying is a is a very interesting um, uh, example of that. Uh, in terms of finding an industry that has such tailwinds and a company that's so well positioned within that industry that even though uh, you know everyone would say it's a it's a project based revenue business, I feel a lot safer about the the certainty of revenue there than even in a you know reoccurring or recurring revenue business.
0: Well, one of the things. Uh, um... I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but you just touched on it, so let's dive in. One of the things that you said in our pre-call uh, uh, that you think is isn't doesn't get enough attention from searchers and kind of the criteria is buying a business in an industry with strong tailwinds. Now that might sound to listeners like, well, no, that is that's well known, that's obvious. Of course, you want a growth industry, but really, it's low on the list, and a lot of people buy businesses in, in rather sleep, sleepy industries. Um, and, it, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a balance. It's, it's threading the needle a little bit because we also, I'm, I don't think you're going to advocate buying, you know, this isn't, this isn't tech where you're buying into some explosively growthy industry. Um, but strong tailwinds have been a big part of your story. So, uh, and I, I feel like maybe you didn't realize it at the time, but in retrospect, you'd say that criteria should be much higher on people's list uh, while, for example, recurring revenue should maybe be lower. Is that a fair uh, encapsulation of how you feel in 2023?
1: Yeah, c- completely agree. I think, um, you know, where, where this all starts with to begin, right, is is looking in, in Texas and specifically focused on Austin and Dallas, where you have such a demographic tailwind from people moving here. And I, I think it can't be understated how true it is that a rising tide lifts all boats uh, when it comes to small businesses. Now, that still means you can mess things up, obviously. That's not the question. But um, you know, we've seen in, in my early career, um, what, one of the absolute death nails of companies that were in financial distress was if the, the you know, restructuring officer said, oh, we just need a little more revenue. We need a little more revenue means that there's no way that's, that's going to get saved. Because most of the time, what that means is that uh, the market is, the overall industry is declining. Everyone's fighting tooth and nails to, to stay alive. And it's just—it's almost impossible to to get out of that situation. Whereas on the flip side, if you have a market that's growing, uh, you know, ten, twenty percent, and and we'll go into you know turf here in a second and and um, how we kind of put together where where we think that should end up, uh, you have room for error, uh, and and yeah, maybe your uh, conversion rates go down a little bit here or there and whatnot. But if you just have an industry that's growing, you know, twenty percent plus. Uh, There's just room for error because your competitor can also grow 20% and you can grow 20% and nobody has taken any share, right? And so uh, instead of um, battling it out for um, every single customer, you're in a scenario where you can't even serve all the customers, which is a fundamentally better problem to have than the overall pie of customers shrinking or, or just kind of being flat. Um, and so, you know, I think for us, when, when we first started looking at this business, um, it was we, we knew the Texas market, you know, especially where we're located in North Dallas. Um, you know, I've seen single family homes go up left and right to where I know, you know, our install base overall is growing 10 something plus percent a year. Um, obviously, the, the big big driver here is is adoption of turf. It's a relatively new product. Um, when you look at you know the the West Coast where uh, the the kind of residential artificial turf trend started, um, you're at way way higher penetration rates. You know we're we're talking 20x, 30x the amount of homes have turf there than they do here in in very similar climates. And so you you put those two together, and then the third part of, of the trend that we saw is just uh, you know millennials are finally buying home, and we like to spend our Saturdays uh, at a brewery instead of mowing our, our you know our lawn. And so yep. you you combine the three together, and you have real real tailwinds and real real reasons for the overall industry to grow dramatically. And obviously you know it had been you know the the financials were uh, the the a true hockey stick. Um, and so we had real reason to believe that was going to continue. And, you know, again, with, with an industry that's growing that quickly, you just get um, room for error um, yep. because there is, there's for every customer you lose, there's three more that uh, you can do better on the next time. Yeah.
0: Well, we're going to uh, revisit this, but I before we get too far away from the kind of your philosophical approach to your search, let me ask a couple of follow-up questions there. You said uh, a few minutes ago that you really just appreciated the speed to get in the seat uh, and you really listened closely to the searchers you talked to that bought quickly. Elaborate on why that was so important to you because what you so often hear is that a search can take a year or two, and oh, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. You, seem to, you seemed to feel that, no, there is something wrong with that. I don't want to spend that time th- that amount of time just searching.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit about knowing yourself, right? There, I think there's certain uh, characters that um, are fine with kind of sitting in, in that discomfort and and are very optimistic people, and uh, they're a year and a half in, and they have the optimism and you know you know say, oh, I think the best ones come are going to come around in month, you know, twenty one. Um I know that for me that wasn't the case um I know for me is like for every you know every month that ticked by and every month that your bank bank account starts ticking lower um I would get that 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 would have like a psychological toll on me, and that would bother me and so I thought that my uh best decision making and our best decision making was gonna be in the first six months for sure when you you know still have all the optimism and you're still early on and you know you can be more it's easier to be more critical so i thought that having a high volume of deal flow and a high volume of deals that you look at early on is is very crucial i kind of compare it to a little bit to you know if you uh, if you have a night out on the, on the bar it's, uh, it's very similar where you know you probably make your best decisions in the first hour of the night not in the in the last hour of the night um, <laughs> And so I, I think that's one side and then I think the other part too is um, it is really hard on, on these very small businesses with very limited data to like be a better investor in terms of the business you you buy there's just so many external factors that even if you're hundred percent on your underwrite in with the data that you have um, most likely if you, if we looked at hundred small businesses that searchers bought um, the outcome would probably not be or the what determines the outcome is probably not something that people looked at during underwriting. It's that, you know, all of a sudden there's a new law in your, in your town and you just didn't know about it and that's why the business went bankrupt. I mean, you've, you've had uh, big wins and big failures, uh, you know, on, on uh, uh, or not failures, but, you know, where, where things went wrong. And I think most of the time it's not something that people had on the radar. And as much as I'm like, hey, you know, when I, when we buy the business, I want to be able to give you the postmortem of what went wrong if it does go wrong the reality is just in small businesses, you're not going to have all the information. And so I thought the, the importance of getting in the seat early and not getting to the point where you've had a failed deal or two. Now you really want to, you know, you don't want to be the guy who didn't buy. So now you're at months 22. And now you all of a sudden, you know, instead of just compromising on one criteria, you're compromising on three. And then you, that's how you get to really hot water. So I just think psychologically search is, is draining, especially, you know, you see people around you buying and what, and, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, luck and timing and whatnot. Um, but that, that's the part of why I think getting a high volume of deal flow early, getting a lot of looks, submitting a lot of IOIs and, and just, you know, being ready to go. Uh, that's the other thing, just like willingness to pull the trigger. Helps a lot psychologically, and and I think ends up in a in a better decision um, because you 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 still have time, and you're not too worried about oh I'm I'm not going to buy something.
0: Well, it's interesting hearing hearing your approach here, Johannes, because uh, at, I guess at its core, this was a risk mitigation strategy. You didn't want to find yourself in month twenty two making bad decisions, so you were trying to eliminate that risk. At the same time, it feels like somebody who's has a much higher appetite for risk than he's he's giving himself credit for because because you're just you just really want to clearly want it to go 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 and that doesn't sound like somebody who is um risk averse as you as you kind of self described um the one of the other things on this on on kind of how you thought about small business acquisition uh that you mentioned to me in our pre call was about the price that you pay in the multiples. You said a couple of things that that um, entry multiples don't matter as much as everybody thinks. There's a pretty tight band. So, and then there's another point you made that I'll ask second. So please, uh, the the multiples um, range and, and how you think about that, uh, elaborate on that for the audience, please.
1: Yeah, well, ha- happy to, I think. Uh... Uh, I started my career in in valuations, and uh, I've I've done the uh, the game of you know building models with uh, hundred and something tabs, and and thinking that uh, as long as you have enough inputs and, and enough dials to uh, push up and down, eventually you'll get the exact right answer. And uh, obviously, that's that's not really the case. And so. When we approached this, my, my thinking was, okay, what, what's really like the realistic range that you can bid here? And the, the range that we came up with, and you know obviously that kind of moves a little bit with uh, where, where rates are, but effectively I was like, on the low end, if you give someone three times, um, a, a lot of sellers are just there, I'll just like run it for another three years and I can make the same amount of money. And so I thought bidding significantly below three times um, just isn't probably particularly interesting to sellers. Like, i.e., not going to happen. So, so, don't expect yeah, that you're going to get a deal for that. Exactly, exactly. And then, and then on the high end, um, you know, you have to get if you're doing self-funded, you have to get it through uh, an SBA loan. Um, so you have to get it through an appraisal. Uh, the people that do the appraisals, they pull the the regular market comms. Like, you're probably not going to get uh, away with paying over five times. They're just not going to appraise it, and you're going to have to put more equity in, and that you know uh, ruins kind of the the. Uh, uh, investor um, returns, and then realistically, if you look at you know what the debt service uh, covenants are that most banks have and everything, you're you're really looking at at about four and a half times, right? And so, mm-hmm. I I was thinking this this was going in, I was like, well, uh, realistically, you can pay between three and four and a half times. Um, and mm-hmm. so we just came up with, okay, if it's a deal that's just barely good enough to where I would do it, uh, and I can see myself running it for several years, but There's not, you know, maybe the industry isn't growing particularly quickly. The company needs a lot of internal work. There's no general manager. So you're going to spend all the time running the business, but it's an overall sizable, decent business. So like we, for example, we had like a a 1 million EBITDA landscaping company in Dallas that we looked at, but it was, you know, very antiquated, very, uh, you know, no reason to believe that that was going to grow quickly. That's a three times bid. And then on the flip side, I was thinking, okay, if I have something that I really, really like, you know, um, you know, maybe already has a general manager or, or some level of management in place where we can spend most of our time on growing the business, better industry, um, you know, uh, all the other criteria, a, a better match, um, maybe a little bit larger, then you're kind of pushing towards the, the four and a half. And so when we were going through companies and, and them, el- evaluating them, it was literally like, Get the get the materials. Talk to the broker. Thirty minutes the same day they would get an, an IOI for me, and it was literally just kind of like, barely doing it. Three, kind of okay. Three and a half. I like it. Four. I really want to do this. Four and a half. Right. And then, boom. Like we were usually some of the first to get them an IOI. It was like on a you know on a normal temp- template. It looked legit. We had a call with them, and so that's how we were able to move um, really quickly. So IOIs are less.
0: Used and less well understood compared to LOIs, which are every deal has an LOI. Not all deals have IOIs. Ex- uh, explain what an indication of interest is, and you know what where it falls in the sequence, and what happens if you if you send an IOI. What, you know, paint a picture here.
1: So, an indication of interest in in the, you know the small business buying process is effectively just where you tell the seller your the number uh, that you would you that you would bid for, and then. There's a, a bunch more text on the page, but in reality, it's just like, "Hey, I'm willing to pay four million. Is this even something we should talk about?" That's really what it is. Mm-hmm. And usually, what we would do is have a little bit of a range. So maybe the range would be from like 3.75 to four times EBITDA. Uh, and so, you know, maybe it's saying, "Hey, we'll do 3.75 million to four million in that range," and you know, you, you put the EBITDA there with it. And so. Very quickly, you either get to the point where the broker or the seller says, "Okay, this make you know this is in the realm. Let's talk about it." And at that point, you go into more details around um, you know how the deal is going to be funded, uh, things like working capital and and other parts of the deal structure. Um, but it's a good way of very quickly saying, "Is this worth pursuing or not?" Uh, because we're even talking about the same kind of price level.
0: So really, the what the technique here is that you are bolstering your own um it, the perception that the seller has of you as a real buyer because it's not it's as i said it's not actually that common to use IOIs so so typically you know th- this kind of in the, the way the the buyer indicates interest is just kind of asking for more information and and there's back and forth with the broker and maybe a call with the seller but there's no formal like Indication of interest. I'm I'm now being circular here. So so an IOI, an indication of interest, is like you are raising your hand and kind of formally saying, "Here we we think we like this business. Here's what we think we'd pay." And that just kind of makes you seem more serious. Really, is it, it, that's kind of like, yeah. That's what benefit does it serve to you to do this? It makes. I'm gathering that it makes so, you seem more serious to the seller.
1: Yeah. So so I think as a searcher. Anything you can do to look more professional and more serious is is obviously a benefit. Yeah. And um, yeah, you know, we we can talk through that part. What it helps us most of all is uh, a lot of times you don't know what the you know what the expectations are of the seller. You know, sometimes sometimes they list a the price, sometimes they want more, sometimes they want yeah. less. You also don't really know necessarily where that deal is in in what process it's in. And so once you've made a formal offer like that, uh, you can then follow up the next day and say you know what do they think about the offer, where are they at? And then you'll relatively quickly get answers from brokers around in the in the ballpark, too low. Um, oh, we have three other offers. You know, you, you start moving to the next stage of like seriously talking about putting together a deal um, versus if you, you know, you don't want to have three calls with the broker and ask for more information and ask for more information because all that broker is going to read from that is uh, they're difficult to deal with. Um, this might be a cumbersome process. They don't seem very committed. Um, right. Because like you'll see, uh, sometimes when, uh, you know, competitors buy e- each other in small businesses, that deal is drawn up on a napkin The the broker yeah. says, Hey, I have a deal come up and it's like, give, give me the revenue number and like, we'll go. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not saying that's what you typically, uh, compete with. I think most of your competition is probably other searchers. Um, but I think you know we I think we got had one deal out of everything we looked at where the broker just wouldn't give us the materials and I think mm. a lot of that was um, hey you know the, the uh, initial message we sent to them was just you know this is who we are this is why we're interested in the space We'd love to take a look at the materials. They would send us the materials. we'd go through the materials and say, hey can we have a you know quick 30 minute call talk about it and we'd have our initial kind of gauging questions of is this even a deal that we want to do right? Um, mm-hmm. And then after that deal it was okay I'll you know I'll, I'll send you an offer later today and then it was effectively you know in reality it's just a number right but it was a well-written out email this is why we're excited about the deal this is why we're the right people for the deal and then you have an actual PDF document that's attached that says you know indication of interest and here's like the, the number And so mm-hmm. I think it, it and to, just and like, to be you're... very
0: clear here Johannes when you say offer, in the in the context, you just used it. You mean IOI. You do not mean LOI. Yeah, yeah. I, we're still talking IOI. Okay, just yep. clear because sometimes people use the word offer and LOI yeah, interchangeably. You're yeah, yeah. using with IOI. Okay, okay. So so you 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 see the listing. You ask for uh, materials. You maybe have a thirty minute call with the broker just to kind of like get some high level, apply some high level filters. If it passes those filters, you send an email to the broker and uh, the body of the email with a PDF attachment. The PDF attachment is a kind of a one pager, which is the formal IOI. And you also kind of bullet point what those are in the body of the email. And that can all happen in 24 to 48 hours. Correct.
1: Yeah. And, and I think the, the overall point here is, right, what I wanted to start with is let me look at businesses that I can buy at a price that I would buy them at. And then let me figure out if I like them. If I really like them, right? Like, it, it, you don't want to waste time and just like uh, submit IOI, uh, IOIs or whatnot on, on companies you'd never buy. But anything that's in the realm, let's make sure we're at a at a price point where it makes sense for us to have a conversation. Because the 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 worst way to waste time as a searcher is you start getting into the weeds of a business. You really 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 like it. You get to like week eight, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, we want 15 times." Like, I mean, I'd I'd never sell for anything more. It's like. Well, great. Now you're an industry expert in like some random industry, but that's not very helpful to uh, what you're trying to accomplish.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so these businesses that you're, these listings that you're seeing are not just on biz by sell, obviously, because most businesses on biz by sell do already have a price listed. So where, where are your other, where are your sources of deal flow?
1: Yes. So we started with the you know regular brokered, uh, brokered sites. I think you know uh, in the last two years, this, there's been a lot of deal aggregators that have made that easier at, at the point we were searching. There's still probably 20, 30 websites that, that we were checking. Uh, mm-hmm. But what I would say is I don't care what the price is on this by sell. I'll tell you what I'm willing to offer and you tell me if we should have a conversation or not. And so okay. we we'd go through and say sometimes we would been over sometimes we would been under it's it's the the price that you want for the business has you know nothing to do with what I, I'm willing to pay for the business and so we just go through say is this business itself interesting here's what I will pay for it should we have a conversation or not and then plenty of times they say no we shouldn't have a conversation okay good good to know move on to the next one gotcha gotcha. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so the listed
0: price is something that you kind of really <laughs> didn't, didn't factor into much at all. Um, I assume if the listed price was so egregious, that would just be, you could filter out that listing without even spending any time on it.
1: Yeah. Well, but, but you got to remember there's, uh, there's good brokers and there's bad brokers out there. And one of hmm. the worst qualities in bad brokers is that they just won't tell a seller that they're delusional. So the seller comes in and says, I want 20 million for this business and it's worth five. And then he mm-hmm. lists it for twenty million. It sits on biz by sell for ninety days, and and nobody has inquired about it. Or the people that have inquired about it, do some diligence, try to figure out a way they can make the twenty work, and then just walk away from it. And so then if you come yeah. in and you're the first person to say, hey, I'll I'll buy it. It's going to be for five. But if you want to have a conversation at five, let me know. And then probably in the first go around, they're going to tell you, yeah, no, it's worth way more. And then six months later, you probably get a call and say, hey, are you guys still interested in this? <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, that yeah, that's why I I'm not saying ignore the listing price entirely. Um, but in general, it's like your your valuation is what matters, right? You're the one who's who's paying the money, so um, it it should definitely start with this is what I'm willing to pay. Is that something that you guys are interested in? The other follow up question I had was
0: another thing that you said on our pre call was that going back to multiples and what you pay for a business, we've established that you know there's kind of a tight band of basically three to four and a half that you're going to pay within. Um, and you also, in terms of moving quickly and getting in the seat early, you also have this, this view that paying a little bit more now, i.e. a higher multiple, is like paying less later, and, and you just wanted to get going sooner. What, what did you mean by that? Elaborate on that, comment.
1: Yeah, so, so the idea is, um, you know, if you think about uh, larger businesses, um, pretty much all of the outcome that you're going to have at the end is the multiple that you're going to get. Right. Like you're going to grow EBITDA by a little bit. But if in that time, you know, maybe you bought it 12 times, you sell it for 20 times, like whether you grew at 10 or 20 percent doesn't matter. It's all about the multiple. And so that's why people are very, very focused about buying cheap on the front end. There's also plenty of research that, you know, looking at the private equity asset class that will tell you the number one predictor of, of returns and outcomes is, is buying cheap. Now, where this uh, is a little bit different for really small businesses is that the multiples are so low that one year's worth of cash flow is a meaningful portion of the overall enterprise value, right? So if I buy it four times today and I get the cash flow from a full year, I'm effectively sitting at three times uh, of that value one year later, right? It's ignoring taxes, but let's just like for simplicity, think about it that way. And so what I was thinking about is, uh, you know, a business that I buy today. Like I think a lot of people get hung up on, um, you know, like a, a quarter turn of, you know, or like uh, two hundred thousand on, dollars on, you know, that that you fight back and forth on, uh, on a business that does a million of EBITDA. And you know, the the reality is like in the in the two months that you just argued about this, the business generated two hundred thousand dollars, right? And so the idea is that if I let a business go for, you know, when we're close early on, I have to find something better at a, re- at a significantly lower price later on, right? And so if you think about if you're, you know, two months into search and you can buy something for, let's say, four and a quarter t- times, or, you know, you're two years into search and you can buy something for three times, you as a searcher would still have made more money buying that same business for four and a quarter times uh, two mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Now that's a little bit different for um, for investors because um, obviously they you know the, the cash flows get distributed very unevenly in, in self-funded deals uh, so you don't want to just go haywire with your um, uh, with your multiples but what I'm saying is like when in doubt I think it's a reasonable strategy to pay a quarter turn more to get a business that you really like early on um, because of the dynamic that these businesses generate real real cash flow.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating and I think very strong point. And it also, you know, part of your analysis there, I think is also useful for people to think about is we think about these multiples, three X, three and a half, four, and you're like, oh, well, three and a half is so much more than three. Well, if you map what those turns, what the number before the X represents to number of months, they all, they all, of a sudden seem a lot smaller. So half a turn or 0.5x, that's six months. Like six months goes by like that. So, so it's like, so just when you're, if you're negotiating tooth and nail with it, with a seller between three and three and a half x, he wants three and a half. You, you only want to give three. You know, realize that it's just you're basically just offering another six months of working in the business if you just give him his his three and a half versus your three. So, I think, um, you know, yeah, mapping multiples to months can be can be helpful to realize that we're we're oftentimes kind of bickering over tiny tiny blocks of time, really, tiny blocks yeah. of time. that's a, that's a great way to put it. Johannes, okay, so this is fantastic. I know we're we're spending a lot of time just on the search itself. <laughs> we got a long way to go here, but this is this is great stuff. So you're okay. We have an, you, we have uh, established your IOI technique, and you also then sent out a flurry of LOIs. So talk about how you guys were just like sending out lots of IOIs and LOIs. It was just like uh, an expression I heard from from a guest the other day: "Violence of action, the violence of action."
1: Yep. No, that's that's right. you So I I think you know we talked about uh, for most IOIs it was probably a, a two to three day turnaround from. Finding the listing to to giving them an IOI, then a lot of times you'd have about a week or so of uh, them figuring out if it's worth to look at or not worth to look at, and assuming they said, "Hey, this is in the ballpark, let's move forward." Uh, we usually have one big um, call with the the buyer, probably you know a, a, an hour or two or something like that, uh, where we kind of checked off all the you know we've already had the first half an hour call with the broker, and now it was kind of a little bit more in depth. And at that point, we would convert the the I O I, where we kind of had the number, to an L O I. And what what was important there is, well, let's say we have a little bit more concentration that we like, or there's uh, you know some things that we don't like as much. So maybe we would structure it with a bigger seller note, um, or maybe we would bid at the lower end of the range that we had put in the I O I, or something like that. And so, uh, but again. Being easy to work with, giving people real numbers quickly. So you know, from the seller side, they would have to spend one hour with us, and then they would get an LOI. And so, in the LOI, at this point, you're the 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 LOI just lines out all the deal terms. I think you know people that, that listen to your podcast are obviously familiar with that. And the big points for us were, um, you know, obviously the price, the structure, and you know, including the seller node. And then um, you know, we already did working capital. That's that's one thing that um, you know I think it you, you, kind of depends on the deal if you want that this early or not. Um, but what we would do there is is relatively quickly give the seller something to respond to. Um, and then a lot of times, you know, they would ask for a little bit more money or they would ask for a little bit smaller seller note. And the way we resolved that was usually I would give people two options. I would say, hey, I'll give you a smaller seller note, but it's 100% forgivable. Or I'll give you the bigger seller node, and um, you know maybe it is like has a ladder of forgivableness, or maybe half is forgivable, half isn't. And so what you do that way is uh, you kind of make them put their money where their mouth is, and you just have two options that you really like. So maybe you do a million seller node, um, but not all of it is forgivable, or you do half a million and and all of it's forgivable, right? And so. Uh, that way, instead of arguing about, hey, but this is what it's worth, this is what it's not worth, that's never helpful. Um, you give them two options to pick and say, if you want to do this, you know, let's let's pick one of the options. And so, we uh, we did pretty well with that um, that kind of approach, and you know, probably converted. Uh, well, we we signed three three or four LOIs. It's been a minute now, but um, uh, at one point we had. Uh, we had two, well, yeah, two signed at the same time. Uh, the nice part of it about being partnered searches, we we probably would have just done both uh, if if both would have gone through. Uh, I don't recommend just blindly signing LOIs and then walking back on uh, on deals. I don't think that's good form. Um, but I do think that you know just because you have something under LOI doesn't mean that you stop searching because you know we all know there's there's a decent failure rate there. And then we also had, even after that, um, with IOIs that we had submitted earlier um, that, that would have gone to the the LOI stage. So I think overall, it's just been it was just an approach of being easy to work with, being very actionable, and like not getting into the well, you know, I got my MBA and the working capital needs to be the just like let's let's figure out a deal that I would want to do that you would want to do, and let's keep moving forward, keep moving forward.
0: Yeah, so it was it was not being overly kind of onerous in trying to kind of perfect every little aspect of the deals. That was part of it, and then the other part of it was the quantity, the kind of flurry of IOIs and LOIs that you guys were sending. That was the, that was kind of the two pronged. Do you think um, strategic uh, advantage that led you to basically getting something your LOI out signed in, in six weeks?
1: Yeah, and I—I I mean, look, I'm—I'm I'm not going to say there wasn't also, you know, luck involved. Like, I'm—I'm I'm the yeah. last person to say, you know, it's—you uh, can do this robotically. Uh, but I have sim- seen people buy on similar timelines using similar approaches. I think that the yeah. part that that we do have to add to your to your analysis is like probably bidding a tad bit higher. Like, I think we probably were on average Ooh. a quarter turn or so higher, and so that just gives you, if you're fast, pretty high and easy to work with. That's a lot of reasons for a broker to to talk to you, um, yeah. And and you can move through through things fairly quickly. And what were some of your criteria in terms of uh, of size of business? By the way. Uh, so we said the absolute minimum would be 750k of EBITDA. Really looking for for a million plus, and that is one point that we got really lucky on. Uh, but that I think is is way more important than than I even thought. I think there is a fundamental difference if you have a business where you are the main manager, so where you are the general manager, the, you know, like you are running the day-to-day operations versus where you have one level of management. So I think a big reason why uh, we've been able to grow this business as fast as uh, it has is because we had a really good general manager in place. And uh, so we spend 80 plus percent of our time working on the business and not in the business and it's also a fundamentally different role that you're that you're um, playing um, and I think especially for people that come from banking consulting private equity like corporate uh, you know fortune 500 where you're used to kind of very intellectually or generally intellectually intellectually stimulating work and, and difficult like intellectual problems rather than just like you have an upset customer and you just have to deal with it um, I think that's something that, that we're very grateful for, that I get to figure out how to uh, get in the depth of SEO and marketing channels and run all that and then figure out what the best software system is. And it's just kind of like almost project-based consulting work on making the business better rather than... You know, every day there's you know there's always someone who's upset and some fire to be put out, and those are just very different roles. And you got to remember that if you're searching, you're going to do this, even if you if you're going to sell your business for for three or five years, and being eyes wide open of what your day to day actually looks like, I think is uh, is pretty important, especially when you go through the search and it gets very appealing to like look at the 500k of EBITDA and the 400k of EBITDA and I think it's very dangerous to buy small because if you have, if you were really small, you probably have very few employees. And that means inherently you have concentration risk. If you have four employees, you have 25% employee concentration. And it's, you know, the, you're one irrational decision away from, uh, having to, you know, figure out something that, or, or like you have no transition with an employee and it all falls on you. And, and all of a sudden, you know, you're spinning your wheel.
0: Let me ask you, though, about the GM and its correlation to size of business. Because I, I feel like that correlation, I, I used to kind of tightly couple. And now in my own mind, I've kind of decoupled it. Because sometimes you know, a business might have a l- lower SDE, 3, 4, 500, precisely because the existing seller has invested in putting in a GM. So it's a four or five hundred thousand dollar SDE business, uh, but it has you know a, a middle layer of management. Otherwise, it would be you know closer to six or seven. Um, and so, it, and, and vice versa. So if it's a seven hundred and fifty or eight hundred thousand dollar SDE business, it might only be so rich because you know the sellers the sellers doing all the operations him or herself, and they haven't invested in the GM. So I, I do feel like you have to take those. You have to take those two um, characteristics of the business separately,
1: yeah, 100 percent. I, I just think it's fairly rare for uh, for businesses of that size to have the GM. If they do, fantastic okay. yeah, like I, I think 100 okay. percent like it, it's not a pure size metric, but it tends to correlate pretty heavily uh, I, I think okay. there is like if you think about there is a real real sweet spot. In kind of the the American ecosystem of uh, running your own business, having like five or so employees making seven, eight hundred grand a year. And you've got it figured out. And, you know, it takes you 40 hours. If you can get to that point, not a lot of people let go of that. Right. And so and then you're also you get the validation of, you know, you're the you're the head guy, you're important, you're you know, you have standing and, and that kind of thing. So I, I personally have never seen a, you know a, a business that has a GM that does you know 400k of, of true EBITDA. Not saying they're not out okay. there but um, yes, if if you find one of those totally uh, applies to the the GM category. I I just haven't seen a lot of them. Okay. Okay, fair enough. And then Johannes, you know,
0: the the you you pretty much said everything I think that there is to say about how, buying a business with a GM and how that completely changes what you and your partner have been able to work on day to day. But it's so important, let's dwell on it for a second. So one follow-up question would be, one of the kind of um, arguments for buying a business that doesn't have a GM, and so you come in as the operator for a year or two is kind of what the vision would be, and then you hire a GM. And the value there is that you really, really learn business and that, that 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 have will have that investment on your part will have some long term value to how you can then strategically run the business when you hire that GM and step up and start working um, on the business rather than in it you guys haven't you, you guys aren't haven't been operators at all um, do you do you see any validity to that argument or are you like no you don't really need to operate the business try if you can get it just find a business with a gm
1: 100 percent. if you can find one with a gm find one with a GM. because the answer <laughs> okay. is like yeah you know, i mean the the real answer is like you'll come into the business and you'll learn everything about the business but pretty quickly right good operators execute the very similar thing day after day after day after day and so i think by the time we were six months in i could have told you how you run A turf business um, and we could have run a turf business doesn't say mean I want that role right and like I can tell you from we we opened uh, a new location in Austin um, earlier in the spring where we effectively played that role and that location is doing just fine but it's not what I want to do and it's not what I uh, what I think the best use of of our time is Um, and so I think when you first come in, uh, even if you have a GM, you're still going to go through the same processes, right? Like you're going to go through what is everyone doing? How exactly how are we doing every piece of the business? You're still going to learn all the same processes. Um, the, the only difference is then instead of you learning it and then having to execute it day to day to day to day and then having to figure out in your downtime or in the evenings how to improve processes and make it bigger, um, you get to spend the majority of your day on that. Um mm-hmm. so i I think okay. you know if you when you buy a business and you sign a personal guarantee and you know it's make or break on this, you have plenty of incentive to figure out how to run that business successfully, even mm. if you're not answering every customer call and you're not dealing with every heat case and uh, you know the, the those aspects of it
0: and returning now to the 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 question of criteria for a business to buy and how as we talked about your professor slap in the face so you relaxed some of your criteria like recurring revenue uh and and then now looking back you've kind of think that having having nice industry tailwinds is is a criteria that searcher should really pr- prioritize is this one also a uh, a criterion that that searcher you think searchers should really prioritize look for a business with a gm in it or 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 maybe it's at least ask yourself like you know, really envision yourself in the business and ask yourself what you want to be doing day to day. Don't kind of not address that question directly. And if you decide that you really don't want to be an operator, then yes, one of your criteria needs to be buy a business with a GM in place. Could I just answer the question?
1: <laughs> yep. No, I, I think it's very similar. I think the the tough part is it's it's a little bit of a luxury at the end of the day. I think uh, if you look at the landscape of businesses that fit the criteria that church is looking for, I I bet that uh you know maybe twenty percent of them have a GM maybe maybe less, mm. and so okay. I I think it's uh, uh if you can get it, highly recommend doing that. Um, I don't think you should start a search and say I I'm only gonna do that, because uh there's a decent chance you're gonna you're gonna pass on good businesses um where you're just gonna have to get your hands dirty initially like we had. A small business roundtable with like ten other guys that bought around the same time, and I think we were the only ones who had a true GM like that in place. Um, what one of them was, you know, kind of down the road further on, you know, four, four or five years in, so he's in a similar spot. But I think for most people or most churches that buy, you're probably replacing the owner, and you're going to have to get in the trenches for a year or two. What I'm just saying is, be cognizant of what that actually looks like, and mm-hmm. if you can, you know, I would probably pay up. For a business that has a GM that is that's going to stay and is long-term incentivized, um, because I think that depends on what role you like. If you want to be an operator, then obviously you know be the operator. But I think for yeah. most people, uh, the the typical background that searchers have would enjoy the working on the business than in the business a lot more.
0: Yeah, yeah. But you guys, to be clear, you guys would have you were prepared to and would have been willing to be the operators for a year, yes. buy a business where you were going to be the operator for a year too. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right, let's uh, let's get into the business that you bought, uh, Johannes, because uh, there's there's um, s- fun aspects to to th- that whole story. So, how do you find DFW Turf Solutions? Where where, where was the source of this particular listing?
1: L- listed on BizBuySell, so uh, right. Uh, right down right down <laughs> Main Street. Um, i think the the reason we ended up getting it was because it was growing so quickly that um it was very tricky to make that deal work with an sba loan and we kind of had to get creative on that side um but uh so dfw turf solutions is an artificial turf install business um our bread and butter is uh, backyards in suburbia so uh you know we're based in dallas obviously so you have a lot of people that can grow grass in their backyards, there's shade, or they just you know, don't want to pay attention to it. And so, uh, you know, you just moved out to the suburbs, you bought, you know, spend a pretty penny and, and five or 600 grand to finally get the house. And now the dogs are muddy and the, the kids are scratched up and you're like, hey, uh, I I want this to be a usable space. And uh, that's, that's where we come into play. And uh, so we do lawn turf, pet turf, uh, we do putting greens. Um, and uh, that's about you know, the, the majority of what we do, and then uh, we do some light commercial jobs. So, you know, apartment complexes, restaurants, dog parks, uh, things like that. Um, we don't really do the big sports fields. Um, that's, that's a very different industry. Um, but that's, yeah, that's the core of the business. You had said that it had been,
0: it was a growthy business. It had grown a lot in the years prior to your acquiring it, which made financing difficult. So elaborate on that whole aspect of this.
1: Uh, yeah. So, so uh, you know, we're we're talking about late 2021. They wanted to sell off of year-end 2021 numbers. Um, the business had grown, I think, uh, LTM, where we're sitting at like 60% growth or something like that for year-end, it was going to be close to 70. And so if you think about most banks finance based on, you know, last year or last three years um, and, uh, you know, a certain debt service coverage ratio there. And so, the the standard or the, at that point, typical kind of like 80, 80, 10, 10, 80 SBA loan, 10 cell and 0, 10 10 equity um, was, uh, was going to be really tricky. Um, and so we f- ended up finding a bank that was willing to start underwriting uh, based on a Q of E, like an LTM Q of E, and then uh, say, hey, let's wait for the, let's close with the 2021 tax return. And so that way we were able to Offer them what you know a real price on on the current size of the business because obviously it looked very very different in in 2021 than it did in 2020 because it was growing so quickly, um and so one was uh you know structuring something that made the numbers work, um and then the other part was uh obviously one understanding and assessing ourselves if this was just a fad and a, and a one time obviously we're still coming out of COVID and everyone is talking about COVID pops, um. And then once we we got comfortable with, the, with uh, believing that it is a long term trend, um, convincing the the banks that it was as well. So um, there there was a lot of uh, I think the financing piece was was the most uh, difficult piece of the deal because the the diligence itself, um, both financial, operationally, everything else came back you know kind of squeaky clean as as good as you can. Um, didn't have the typical sellers are running a ton of personal expenses through the business. None of that was happening. So. The other sides of the deal were were pretty easy, but the the financing piece was tough, and then um, had to kind of you know uh, nurse nurse it. It ended up taking five months to close uh, because we had to nurse it uh, to the finish line.
0: And so, how how do you value a business that is growing sixty percent year over year? What was what was your kind of multiple going back to that, or your valuation? How did you how did you calculate that?
1: Yeah, so so it was same thing as before, right? Uh, going going back to the three to four and a half, we you know, liked the business uh, a lot. You know, it had the GM, it had the industry tailwind, so it was towards the, the upper end of that range. Um, and you know, quite frankly, it's one of those where I wouldn't have been surprised if they didn't end up selling it because it was growing so quickly, and you could easily make the case that um, you know if we wait another year and we get the same multiple, then you know we're, we'll we sell for way more. So we, we stuck to the the same process we walked through earlier. Um, in, in their case, the sellers were selling because um, they wanted to use the money for real estate development. They had gotten in real estate development already. Um, I think that's a big uh, piece when you have a, a business that's growing very quickly. Um, it, there's not a lot of incentive to sell that at any given time, especially if you're talking about you know 30% plus uh, growth. And so I think the reason for selling becomes all the way more important because the seller knows way more about the business than you do. And if you're in a, uh, if it turns out to be a fad, they have a lot of reason to sell. Uh, you know, whenever yeah. they think it's peaking. Um, so we, you know, we actually looked more into that. Looked at what projects they had developed. Asked them about how much money they had made there. And it turned out that they actually were likely to make more money on the real estate deals than this business. So that's when we you know, took it as a good enough reason to sell the business. Uh, everything else is like, oh, it's, you know, it's a lot of work. It's like, you have a GM that's running the business. It's growing quickly. Yeah. Like, wh- why would you sell this? Um, yeah. But you got comfortable that they really wanted the capital. Exactly. They had specific deals lined up. They were starting a 50-unit a, a townhouse development, and this was going to be the equity. So it's going to go out of, you know, out of the bank account, like in the bank account and right back out of the bank account. So Yeah, um, yeah. There, there was a reason there. And then for a fast growing business, the multiple
0: of SDE or EBITDA, the EBITDA number that you use is just last year's or is it like a, a blended from the last 36 months?
1: Uh, it, it wouldn't have worked as, as anything blended. Like I think the, the, what we had to get comfortable with was that the size that the business was at this current point in time. So essentially last 12 months uh, was going to be the size that the business was going to be going forward or, or bigger. Right. And so a lot of it for us was, you know, do we believe these tailwinds? Do we believe this is a fad or do we believe this is this is long term sustainable? Right. And so, you know, if you look at uh, like part of how we got comfortable with that was, you know, we've done a lot of deals in home services. We know what reviews typically look like and the reviews across the whole industry are insane. Like if you're a 4.7 rated turf company, you are terrible. You are absolutely terrible. <laughs> and so you have you can see that, you know, consumers love the product because it's not like the turf industry is just so much better at at, you know, customer service and everything else. It means that even a mediocre performance must satisfy most customers, otherwise you'd have, you know, way more bad reviews. So that was one where we are like, okay, the product is really hitting with the customers that you have. The second piece is we looked at, um, you know, where did, this, where did this trend come from? And the reality is that um, it had their, turf companies in, in Texas only started about like 2010, 12-ish, were like the first ones. So for most people, the pitch is still like, people don't even know about the product. Like almost everyone we talk to um, is like, hey, I just want a solution to my dogs being dirty all the time. Like, does this work? Um, And so when we looked at where did it come from, like it was a lot of the distributors, like residential artificial turf only started about 20 years ago on the West Coast. And then it's usually the distributors started first, and then you get the installers coming after. And so you had two of the bigger distributors come to Dallas in like 2010 and then one in 2015. And then you see, kind of with a lag after that, that the adoption really picks up, right? And so you have um, the you have the reviews to prove to you that the customers love the product, um, and obviously we talk to other customers as well. Second piece was uh, the share of uh, the business that came from referrals was really high, which tells you that um, you know once people get the product, they talk to their friends, and you have a real mode of like getting the word out without having to pay for every lead and, and those kind of things. Um, so people love the product, people get the word out, and then you look to the West coast and where that trend has already played out. And you know, I think when we bought, my best guess was that one in a hundred homes in, in Dallas had turf. And if you go to like Southern California, Arizona, it's, you know, one in five or more. And so wow. you're, you're sitting there saying, okay, it's. And at the end of the day. You can right, see the future. I, basically. You can see the future. And, markets, and, and so that's, that's really what we said at the end of the day, look, that, that was the analysis. And we obviously we did more than that. But when it comes to buying small business, at the end of the day, you're you're taking a bet. And my bet was that North Texas is going to keep growing. And I think turf is the turf adoption trend is going to keep growing. And that's what we're going to hang our hat on.
0: Yeah. So you were, (laughs) as we joked in the pre-call, you were long turf in long Texas. Exactly. Johanna, so
1: you referred to size, how big was the business at the end of 2021? Uh, so when we bid on it, it was doing just over five of revenue.
0: And skipping to the end, what is it
1: gonna? What, what do you project it'll do by the end of twenty twenty three? So we're uh, we're more than three times the size. Um, I'm I'm not gonna say an exact number, but probably you know close to close to three and a half of uh, three and a half times of uh, what we were when we bought it.
0: Okay, so conservatively, you've tripled the business, and you will have tripled the
1: business in two years. Pretty spectacular. And how many employees was it when you acquired it? So I think we had uh, seven or eight. Um, it's grown a lot, so I'm I'm uh, kind of drawing a blank. We're we're sitting at 22 today. Um, so uh, it's been a lot of change.
0: <laughs> yeah, fantastic, Johannes.
1: Okay, well, uh,
0: it sounds great now, but as I recall, the first two weeks of ownership were terrifying. What what, what are the trend? Tell us a little bit about the transition.
1: Uh, yeah, so I think you know one of the uh, one of the things that we did in terms of just swinging for the fences was structure a deal that was probably a little bit too tight on the on the liquidity front. I didn't want to raise a single extra dollar that I didn't need to raise and and give up equity because in you know in our mind this was really. Swing for the fence, go big or go home, and I think that's a little bit of part of. We can talk about uh, you know the the uh, personal guarantee and, and those kinds of things, but really the way we approached it was like I, w- I want to have a chance of um, you know hitting the number and and walking away, and so um, you know one of the things was we we started with uh, almost no cash in the bank account because legal ended up being a little bit more expensive and a couple other things, and so. Um, we really needed cash to come in the door pretty quickly. And so we took the business over, handoff went well, all those things went well, but then we had, um, snow and ice for the first two weeks, uh, which means we couldn't install at all, which also meant that, uh, no cash was coming in the door. And, um, obviously the day, uh, the clock on the first debt payment starts ticking. And, uh, that's, uh, that is definitely a memory that's that's burned into my mind, and that was uh, not very pleasant. Having to think about potentially having to draw on the revolver for uh, your first debt payment. Um, luckily, the weather let up. Um, you know, late February, early early March were really uh, good, so uh, we never never got into that trouble. Um, but that was certainly one where uh, you know you lost a night or two of, of sleep on. No doubt. Uh, and and was there anything? I guess the answer
0: was simply weather. There was nothing that you guys did to juice sales, like lead, there were no leads and then the sun came out and there were leads again.
1: No, no, no. The, so the, the, the problem is that there were plenty of leads, but we can't install. So we had the jobs on the board to get installed, yeah. but as long as yeah. we don't install, customers don't pay until the job's installed. Uh, and so it was literally like, we were just waiting for the weather to be good enough to install. Um, gotcha. But yeah. You know, I mean, okay, so you did have the comfort of having a, a pretty deep pipeline. We had—I wouldn't say deep. I mean, it was probably you know, a, you know, two, three, four weeks or something like that. Um, but uh, it was more, you know, it, it was fine. Uh, like it's not—it's not one of those where like, oh, we have visibility for you know half a year or, or like nine months or something okay. like that, as you as you do with you know a pool bill or something like that. Um, but we had enough to kind of like get off the ground and running. And then the big thing was obviously like spring is like when, you know, most people go outside and think about what they're going to do with the yard. So we were, that, that's another big thing that we, uh, focused on was when you have a seasonal business closing at the right time, because you don't want to do is close and then go into slow season, uh, that can be pretty brutal. Um, but it was just, so everything was lined up and then it was just, you know, it, it doesn't freeze a lot in Texas. And so, uh, it happened to be the first two weeks that, uh, that we owned the business. And then March came back, but then I think you said April was bad again. So
0: it wasn't. It wasn't just one slow patch. It it got. It went up and then went down. I mean, it was a kind of roller coastery there.
1: Yeah. So it was. Um, you know, it was like a scare to start with. Then March went really well. Like you know, uh, record month in in March all time. Even though you know traditionally that's that's one of the slower install months uh, because the weather just isn't that good yet. And then the the next big scare was kind of Memorial Day. When the the phones just kind of dried up, and you know we had obviously been watching rates starting to take up, uh, gas prices are ticking up, and at the end of the day, you know, uh, if the difference is between putting food on the table and putting turf in your backyard, you're probably going to buy groceries, and so um, <laughs> we we were kind of you know the, the the thesis of like this trend is going to continue was getting a, a a real real challenge there. Um, and it turned out that 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 weekend was just because it was a, a holiday weekend and people have better things to do than than call the turf company on a holiday weekend. But that's the thing when you're in the first year of operations and the the prior owners didn't have a lot of data, you just don't know, right? And you're just you're flying blind until you kind of lap one year around. And now you've you know that's one of the big things you should do is like day one start tracking, because then the sooner you start tracking, the sooner you lap one, the sooner you lap one year, and then you know it all gets put in perspective. Have a baseline. Exactly. You you, you can establish a baseline.
0: Yeah, this was something that I recall, I I wanted to make sure you mentioned, thank you, from our pre-call where particularly kind of people coming from corporate environments, there's a lot of historical data typically in in an institution to refer back to and to compare whatever numbers you're seeing right now to. But in our world, when you buy a business, you know, the the previous owner probably doesn't wasn't tracking that data or or took it with them or whatever. It's just, it's way, way more uh, opaque. And so the sooner you can start tracking the data, the better to establish your own baseline for next year and the next year and the next year. So you want to build your data set. I thought that was a really interesting insight you had.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's literally like you're, you're flying blind initially, like the I think the first day is kind of surreal when you own a business, and there's work going on. You don't really know anything yet because you don't have any passwords. You don't have any, you, you don't know if we're having a good day or a bad day, right? You're not involved in any of the processes. And you're, there's a little bit of a surreal moment where you sit there and you're like, I'm depending on these eight people doing their job or we're going bankrupt, right? Like there's like a, there's like a surreal moment there. And obviously you transition quickly and you, you learn everything and, and that kind of thing. but. Um, I think that the having data as soon as possible is is very crucial to calm yourself down, get perspective, um, and and you know just have longer term trends rather than just being like, "Fantastic week! It was a terrible week. It was a fantastic week. It was a terrible week." This is probably a good opportunity to talk about pers- the personal guarantee,
0: because uh, you're experiencing these moments of terror when you're having these terrible weeks, and you don't have any data to know whether or not you know <laughs> what's going on really. Uh, I think you just kind of wanted to speak to that. What, what did you want to say about the personal guarantee? We all know that it's the most unhappy aspect of these uh, of the way these deals are structured.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's you have to look at it in the broader context of you know the SBA seven a loan, which I think is the greatest vehicle of wealth generation in in the U.S. Like hands down, right? Like I think most people that listen to your podcast probably saw that article in 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 the Wall Street Journal or wherever it was, where they looked at um, all the millionaires in the U S and how they make their money. And it's like 70% of them are business owners, right? So it's like, if you, if that's what you want to do. And if that's what your aspirations are, you should probably own a business in some way, form or fashion, uh, at some point. Um, and then, you know, coming from, from Germany, um, you know, the, there's no comparable, uh, uh instrument like the seven, a loan where you're effectively getting incredibly cheap leverage, um, and you get to own, you know, a, a big percentage of a, of a reasonably large company. Like it is the definition of making money with other people's money. Um, and then obviously, you know, the drawdown is, is the personal guarantee. But I think one way that, that people don't think through as, as much as like, so for example, if you live in Texas and you think about, cause we obviously, we went, I wanted to know what the downside is, right? I know, you know, what the upside is. I was like, okay, if, the, if this goes south, like, what are we actually looking at? Well, your house is safe. Uh, your retirement accounts are safe, um, there's like a, a certain amount of personal property that's safe, and you kind of go down the list and pretty quickly, you're like, okay, so you're telling me if this goes south, it's going to be a shitty year in terms of uh, having to go through bankruptcy court, having to go through the settlement, uh, your credit score being ruined, and um, I'm not 100% sure if you're allowed to work in uh, the securities industry anymore. I, d- I think you're not allowed to do that, so you can't go back to like finance. I think I- I'm not 100% sure. But other than that, it's like you're really not losing that much in a sense where I'm like from like what I had going into this, right, which was effectively I took the money I had and I was like it's either going to go like for living while we're searching or like going into the deal or it's in like retirement accounts or like in, in the in the condo that I have. I was like the downside doesn't seem that bad. It's not what you want to do, right, And uh, but, but if I'm like if the answer is I have on the upside, I get a chance to be done at 35 and very well at 35 on the downside. I stored over at 32. Uh, I still have my car, my house, like, you know, the retirement accounts, whatnot. And uh, yeah, it, it kind of it's it sucks. And you have that, you know, uh, scarlet letter to a certain degree on, on your uh, on your chest. but. Um, you know, so what? I work. You're not like, going to lose every last penny. Yeah, so what? I, I work five years more uh, from 50 to 55. Like, what's the alternative? The alternative is I retire at, at 50, and, like, the downside is I retire at 55, um, but I have a chance to be done at 35. I was like, that that deal sounds pretty good to me. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that's, that's for Texas. I don't know all the state laws um, individually. I think uh, there's some that don't uh, protect the home as much, and, you know, people should look at that individually. But um, now it's still scary. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't take away from the fact of like, it's not a pleasant experience and and not one you ever want to experience. But I think it's important to go through all that before you get into search and really think about, okay, this is my upside. This is my downside. Am I, am I okay with the worst case scenario? What's my reason I'm doing this? Because whenever you get through the diff to the typical parts of like, am I willing to pay up a little bit right now to get this done? Or am I, you know, Am I willing to move on from an employee that doesn't work and is you know threatening us, but maybe is contributing really to the business? I think in those situations, unless you have that foundation and you've really done the the soul searching before going in, that's when you waver and like maybe you don't close the deal and you're like ah, I don't know if like this is really for me. So I think it's very important to do that ahead of time. So then when you get into the situation, you're ready to to pull the trigger and make the decisions that need to be made.
0: That's that, that's sage advice kind of knowing what your tolerances are before you get into the heat of a moment where you're much likely to be less rational more emotional more rash um kind of kind of set your own set your own um kind of borders of of, of your own behavior and and know what your tolerances are before you go into it it's great and just to just to re-emphasize what you said about texas i don't no, either. I'm not an expert on this, but I, I have heard Texas mentioned multiple times as a place where your home is kind of protected in, in a personal guarantee situation. So it, Texas may well be really an outlier, and not many other states do that. Do your homework, people. Neither Johannes or I know, but don't. But, but um, my sense is that that Texas is the exception, not the rule, on that kind of generous approach to the personal guarantee.
1: So okay, just just move uh, to Texas yeah. when
0: you start searching. <laughs> <laughs> and definitely get some turf. All right. I got four or five more questions for you. These are, um, okay, some are about your, sto- your story and your deal, and then some are just kind of uh, broader. The Let's return now just uh, to the growth here. Okay. So you are looking at, as, as I said, conservatively tripling this business after two years. And this, we already talked about how, kind of why Texas is high growth. You can see the future of turf adoption in looking at the markets in California and Arizona, where TurF arrived a decade earlier or more. Um, but but this but I don't think that you were projecting this incredible amount of growth, were you? and 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 is there anything is there any genius in in you and your partner's management of this that has contributed to the tripling of the business? Give us tell people more about how you've done this.
1: Yeah. So I, I think, uh, you know, obviously our, our thesis was that uh, there's consistent growth. I don't think you uh, can underwrite, uh, especially with the, the amount of data we had, which was very limited, right? Nobody tracks turf installs and downs or something. Like that. So you're, you're talking about, you're coming up with your own data the best you can, but you don't really have good data. So I think we were confident that we would have Solid double-digit growth, probably you know, on the high end, you know, ten ten to twenty percent, like was like a conservative estimate that we thought was supported, just purely based on the factors that were long established and kind of inevitable in terms of you know the people moving to Texas, um, the millennial home buyer, and you know a certain level of adoption curve, right? So. Uh, now I think you know we certainly didn't underwrite that level of growth, and I think there's definitely a a good part of uh, right place, right time. Um, uh, but I think there's also a part of a like not as many people were willing to take that risk of buying a project based business with uh, you know a ton of leverage and just saying like yeah. I'm I'm putting my money where my mouth is and I think it it can be really big, but um, at, at least I think it's going to be big. Uh, I think the other part too is that we were willing. Really quickly to, to jump on the growth and not just uh, settle for growing 10 or 20% a year, where we were saying we have the opportunity to go this big. And so let's buy. We got, no, we were a month into the business and we drove to Arkansas to buy another truck because you couldn't find another truck in, in, uh, in Texas. Then we got uh, a vehicle equipment line and bought, I think we bought six or seven trucks the first year that were nowhere in the CapEx budget and just got a vehicle equipment line. And we were we were just like, we, we see the growth is there. Let's get it. Let's actually capture it. And that's not just, you know, we could have easily printed a, a 10% up year and said, hey, great transition worked. you know, um, employees are happy. And, you know, we, we had a good first year. But we really were like, let's let's chase every last percentage of growth that we can. Um, I mean, obviously a, 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 an important reason was that we had the time to, you know, if you're running the business, uh, you're not driving to Arkansas and buying a truck, right? Like you can't do yeah. some of those things. Uh, so so that was, that was important. I, I think another really important part was uh, we picked our investors very carefully to, be able to help us in different aspects of the business. And I think that's one of the the best decisions we've made was have people with different expertise on our cap table that would be able to help us with the different areas in the business that we thought were important. So we had a guy who has a ton of experience in uh, SEO and those kind of aspects. And obviously, we looked at the channels that the business had. And so that was one of the first things we looked at, um, which I think in general, the, the first thing you should do when you buy a business is do whatever you can to have as many sales as possible. Just give yourself buffer. Everything else you can figure out later. But get revenue in the door. Um, and so we figured out that you know there was a lot of our service areas that in certain channels we were just invisible at. And so we fixed that re- you know really early on. Um, and then um, you know we had other investors that were had Texas connections that could introduce us to uh, you know home builders or pool builders or or whatnot. And so I I think there there was a lot of help in that regard as well, in terms of, hey, you know, we think here's an opportunity. Can you guys help us with this, this, and this? And so I think having um, structuring your capital structure, uh, your cap structure and, and with the right people is is very important in, in terms of optimizing your outcome. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, I think uh, it's not that we're outgrowing the industry by a ton. I think it's just the, the market's hot and, you know, we caught lightning in a bottle. I'm the last person to sit here and say that you know uh, we did this all by ourselves. But I think there is uh, the, the best takeaway from the story is that if you get the opportunity and if the market is hot, like go for it and not and don't just print a nice year and, and kind of be willing to take the risks and uh, and put capital behind it to to capture the growth.
0: One of the things that you'd mentioned to me uh, a fee that you weren't expecting had to do with sales and commissions give give people that the warning that you learned the hard way
1: uh yeah this so this is more a a margin question so uh the general manager that we had uh was also selling a meaningful amount of uh, the jobs we were doing and so um you know we we look at our business very much uh on on a margin uh basis where we want to hold margins consistent and just install more and more and more turf and so one of the costs that we just didn't think through as, as much going in was was the mix between um, you know uh, sales that was done by the general manager which were house deals and didn't have nearly as much commission attached to it than uh, a regular salesperson where that, that was their whole job and so as we've you know grown the business by a ton the GM is still selling a good amount um, but obviously his share of sales is, is smaller than um, uh, you know than it was. And so that there's essentially that the, the additional jobs uh, are a little bit lower margin um, because you have to pay sales reps on it. And so I think that the bigger takeaway there is be mindful when you have uh, an owner, a general manager that is involved in the sales function and know that you're going to have to pay somebody somehow uh, for that and factor that into um, you know the SDE and, and, and whatnot. And it's not just, hey, I need to you know, think about a salary for replacing the GM, but you're probably going to have to replace the the salary for a GM or yourself, and then the commissions for a sales rep.
0: Right, and those commissions could be significant because they're often tied tied to a percentage of the sales. So if all of your sales now have this kind of new t- tax, that's gonna that's gonna seriously you're gonna seriously see that on a few points of margin,
1: right? Yep. Yep. And we, we corrected right. it. It was, it was, uh, l- luckily there was enough, um, meat on the bone in our industry where you can, uh, kind of make it back in other ways. But, um, yeah, uh, it, it, important to know. That's
0: right. Two more questions for you, Hannes. uh, both related to kind of, um, having comrades. The first is you did a partner based search we we've re- referred to your partner, but I want to hear you give thoughts about having done a partner based search and the second is about the peer group uh that you put together so first on the on the partner uh what would you tell people about doing a partner based search? How has it served you
1: uh for me personally best choice I've ever made um uh I think uh you know it it's important that obviously it aligns in terms of what you guys are looking for, um, in, you know, both in the search and the outcome and all of those. But I think, uh, a search in itself is, is lonely, uh, to operating is lonely and is a really, really long time, right? Like three to five years is not, uh, oh, you know, you can, any, you can do anything for a couple of months, but three to five years is a, is a really long, uh, time period. And, and for some people even longer, um, And so for me personally, and and I think that depends a little bit on on how different people are wired, um, it's been very helpful to have someone else in the exact same seat, uh, going through the exact same ups and downs. And when you have to make important decisions or tough decisions, um, you can just kind of talk about it and and have uh, the the backup there. And then I think the other piece too of it is um, you buy a lot of flexibility with having a partner. So... I think if you're running your own business and especially if you're the the GM and the main guy, um, if you go on a vacation, like nothing gets done, right? Or if you have uh, a wedding and there's an extra day that uh, um, you would want to leave town, like that's a day that no revenue comes in the door. And so, having the, the second person to kind of pick up the slack, I think, is an important improvement in quality of life. And um, I had talked to um, you know one of my old bosses when we were going through the decision of like should we do partner or not, and he had walked me through some examples in in his life where people had done it either way. And he get, he told me that you know if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, partner up. And so uh, I kind of used that as as the guideline for for why to partner up now. The caveat that I would make is uh, it's not just any partner, right? Obviously it needs to work on a personal level and it needs to work on what you guys are going for. Um, but I think if uh, if the only drawback is, well, I'm going to have to split the equity, um, I think it's worth it.
0: Okay. But that, but that last point is is uh, definitely, there, there's a big cost to it, a financial cost. So, so just people need to be very clear about it in their own mind. Yeah, roughly to get the same outcome, everything needs to be double uh, f- versus doing do, doing your own search. So there is a serious fi- you know financial cost to this. Um, not to at all undermine all of the the value that can be there, and and uh, if with the right partner, I, I think it's almost always going to be worth that cost. But the cost is significant. Okay, last question for you. You'd mentioned it earlier. Uh, this peer group that you put together, i know I, I know it's not super active now or, or or the round table, but it sounds like you were all kind of um, in a similar stage of small business ownership. just uh, talk, talk to me about what you put together, how that went uh, because peer groups are something that um, I just keep hearing talked about as invaluable um, so what, what what was your experience with it?
1: Yeah. Uh, so where it, where it came from was kind of the idea that um, you know one of the aspects that I did appreciate uh, from the from the product we live is like you typically have like a Monday morning meeting where you go through you know where where is each company what are we working on and in those aspects and. In, the, in a best case scenario, this is a situation where one, you have to hold yourself accountable to, to other people, but also you get input uh, that you might not have thought about. You just get more brains to, to think about your problem. Um, and so I wanted to have it as kind of a sounding board. And, and I just thought it would be helpful to have, um, you know, for there's so many problems or, or issues that you face as an operator that everyone else faces too. And I think you don't have to reinvent the wheel on everything. Just like talk to someone who just went through that and and like take their results effectively. And so, um, yeah, we had you know probably eight to 10 um, people that bought around the same time, some a little further, some a little uh, newer. And the format was just once a month, um, one hour for lunch. Um, everyone just go through how things are going, what they're working on and what the group can help with. Um, and I think, especially in the initial um, month, it was it was really helpful. And and whenever there was bigger economic changes, right? And so like, one of the most helpful questions I remember was when we were kind of getting towards fall of twenty twenty two. It was like, hey, how much how much cash are you guys all holding? Like how how are we all mm. thinking about the economy, right? And it's one of those where like, could. Could you all be wrong? Yeah, of course. But it's just like there's a little bit of safety in numbers, right? If, if everyone's saying, it's like oh, I'm not that worried about next year, like my business looks pretty decent. It's like, yeah, ah, it, we're, we're, it's it's less and less likely that everyone's wrong, right?
0: Yeah. Whereas like you yeah. by
1: yourself, you could just get a hunch or, you know, it's like you have your individual experience and you make your decisions based on that. And so we've had uh, a lot of uh, helpful advice in terms of, hey, what are you guys doing for bonuses? How are you guys structuring recruiting? And so for a lot of things, you could just use, um, uh, you know, kind of the learnings that that other people had already had. Um, and so I thought that, that that was that was super helpful. Um, and then I think also just the fact of like it's still to the point of where like you know, you're like, Hey, I have a question around, like, is someone using direct mail marketing? You know, you just throw it out there and you probably get two, three people like, yeah, I tried it work, didn't work. And and you can kind of learn from other people's learnings and just like kind of accelerate your process. Um, so I think that's, that that's very helpful. And um, uh, you know, the, I think, especially in the first year, there's, there's a couple of things we got, all got pretty busy and uh, I, I haven't really had a chance to, to put it exactly together um, th- this year, but um especially in the first year it was it was super helpful
0: and and to be clear you all were all very close in phase so some more recently bought some less recently but most everybody was within a year, or two, a year or two of their two, journey yeah. of small business ownership
1: and where did you find these folks across twitter search finder introductions mm-hmm. yeah 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 this was like my personal network that I had built through the search phase and, and kind of just being in the, in the ecosystem. And then I emailed all of them and it's like, Hey, would you guys be interested in this? Um, and you know, then people signed up, um, and, and we kind of put it together that way. Cool. And it was in person for lunch. No, and all, then you had... all, all online.
0: Oh, it was, a... cause oh, we okay. have
1: so... people all over the country. I mean, the odds are that like, you're not going to know people in your neighborhood like there's a couple of people in Dallas, but we had uh, anywhere from Seattle East Coast, like all across the country, Colorado. Like it, it's more important to find people that are at the same stage than in the same location.
0: Well, yeah, I was going to say when you said lunch, I thought you meant we're meeting in person, so I thought this meant you found ten to twelve recently no, 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 closed no, no. searchers all in DFW. Although I mean DFW is does seem to be one of the most active markets for search, so I, uh, maybe I wouldn't have been surprised. Johannes, this has been quite a conversation, uh, really uh, so much, so much value here. Is there anything I didn't ask anything that you want to make sure listeners hear?
1: Um, I think the only thing I would point out, we're, uh, we're starting to, uh, sit on the the other side of the table again, where, um, we've invested in a couple other searchers. Now, um, it's something that I really enjoy and that I'm really passionate about, uh, helping people kind of along that phase, um, uh, both in terms of you know looking at deals, structuring deals, and then and then investing at the end of the day. Um, so if people have uh, you know are in their self-funded stage, uh, want advice on on a deal or um, have a deal on the table that they're looking for investors for, um, please reach out to me. I'm always happy to help uh, if you know our background is something that's that's helpful there. Um, and then other than that, we're uh, we're expanding. If you come across uh, an, an artificial turf business that's listed for sale, we'll, we'll definitely take a look at it. Um, it uh, should not slip our cracks because we're obviously looking, but in case it does, um, uh, we had one recently that a friend of me sent. Uh, so that would be great. Um, but other than that, yeah, I'd say it's, uh, it's a very interesting uh, time in search. I think the, this is going to be the decade of operators, if you're the person who's willing to get their hands dirty, um, there's more and more economics that are going to go your way. Um, the capital is there. Uh, if you're worried about raising money to close your deal, that's, that's going to be one of the least of your worries. It's all about finding the deal and then being willing to, to, to be the operator. So if, if you have that in your genes, um, it's a, it's a great opportunity right now.
0: Great. I will, uh, put your LinkedIn, uh, in the notes, Johannes. If there, unless there's another way you prefer people get in touch.
1: Uh, LinkedIn's good, Twitter's good, and then if you uh, if you're interested in uh, how I think about search, I, I do write a blog uh, called um, "Buy Small, Sell High." Um, it's uh, I don't get to it as much as I like to, um, but but every now and then, if I if I have thoughts, I I write some stuff there. And there's um, the first post is uh, the self-funded search toolbox, which is every all the tools that we used in our search. So. Uh, if you're just getting started, that might be a, a helpful resource.
0: Yeah, there, there's a number of essays in there that you've done. Probably what eight to ten, uh, in, including the one about uh, recurring revenue is overrated. You had a, another recent one that really explains kind of point by point about how step ups work in structuring a deal. Um, so a lot of a lot of great content in there. It's a Substack, and I'll I'll make sure to link to that as well. Johannes Haack, what a conversation! Thanks very much for coming on. And congratulations to you on DFW's Turf Solutions. So really eager to see that, uh, see how that growth goes in the next couple of years. We'll have you back.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much for having me.